Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Rob Gabrielchuk, and you know, he's got kind of a similar name to me. We're both Rob and we both have a complicated last name. So Rob, how's it going? Yeah, not bad. Thanks, Rob. No, thanks for coming on. And so for everyone listening, Rob, you're the managing director of Aon Engineering. And we're, today we're going to talk a little bit about systems engineering. So it's a little different than our usual topic of reliability. So do you want to just give us a background on you? Like, how did you get your start in systems engineering? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, systems engineering and maybe engineering has been fairly prevalent in my life, um, sometimes without the sort of the formal title. Um, I suppose I was always one of those kids that took things apart, and I tended to tinker around with cars as soon as I was old enough to uh, to drive. Uh, so my formal education really is in material science. I'm a materials engineer. And my first role was a bit of a mixed one where I was a, a mechanical design engineer. So I was already at that point in time, even in my early career, mixing two very strange disciplines that sort of interconnected, but they were, they were sort of two different paths. And in that particular role, I, I got sort of, I got thrust into designing instrumentation and ground support equipment for scientific payloads, uh, specifically for, for space programs. Um, such as ExoMars, BepiColombo, and the Mars sample return. And I kind of got glimpses of what systems engineering was around that time because it's, it's, it's relatively uh, known. It's quite commonplace um, in the aerospace sector. Um, but I, I eventually moved on to sort of a bit more of an R&D kind of uh, line of projects, uh, specifically in the area of high-energy particle physics. And I was working at the time uh, with uh, some guys from CERN, and we were designing and managing some of the upgrades uh, for the Atlas experiment. Um, and it kind of, in contrast to my previous roles, that brought a lot of new challenges that I didn't have to face before. I mean, you don't really think necessarily too much about life cycle engineering uh, and, and decommissioning when you're launching things into the deep, dark abyss of space. You tend not to worry about maintaining those sorts of uh, pieces of equipment. More recently, I've been working on a, on, a, on a big project called the Square Kilometer Array, uh, which is kind of intended to be the world's largest and most sensitive radio telescope. Um, and it's sited in a very kind of remote and hazardous environment. And that brings its own challenges when it comes to understanding how that acts as a system. And I think my 
my real sort of calling within systems engineering is, is born out of the fact that I always found myself asking, why am I doing this? And I always wanted to understand the reason why I'm performing a specific task or designing something in the way that I was designing it, whether it was being designed to support a specific uh, structural load or, or a thermal load. Um, and I also wanted to know what the consequences of my actions were, whether or not I'm going to be able to, to, to make my life easier or actually harder later on by the design choices that I was making at that point. So in a simplistic way, kind of systems engineering for me was really, it was, it was an offering of the tools and the processes to understand these sorts of questions. And I kind of naturally tended towards that kind of an area because it helped me to actually understand the consequences of some of my actions. You know, when you mentioned the starting with why and also understanding the consequences of your actions, those two principles are, they're very common in reliability. When we talk about forecasting failures, looking at risk, those are some core elements that we look at all the time. So I think this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, I know. It sounds there's a lot of synergies. I'm I'm excited to get stuck in. <laughs> so... You know, you, you sort of mentioned it a little bit, but can you give us an introduction to systems engineering? Like, I, I know I don't really have a lot of experience in that. So can you give us just a breakdown of what it is and how it works? Sure, sure. All right. So perhaps the, 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 the best thing for me to do is just define the two words completely individually. And the reason for doing that is as soon as you Google systems engineer, I think people like Microsoft have just encompassed the words, but they've lost some of the meaning. So it's it's important really for, for people to understand what, what it means in its truest sense. And for me, an engineer is pretty much anyone who can identify a problem and then I suppose prescribe and execute the action required to resolve it, where I suppose the resolving of that problem is based on the fulfillment of an objective or, or realization of functionality. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that's not too controversial a statement to make amongst engineers, but that's kind of my, you know, the problem solver is, is the engineer. And the word system is pretty abstract. I mean, it, it can mean pretty much anything. So how do we define this discipline if it's just engineer of anything? And I think the best way is actually and this is kind of a principle of engineering, of uh, systems engineering, uh, uh, that understanding your perspective is important. So to a design engineer, a system could be uh, an individual water pump, for instance, or to a plant operation engineer, it could be an aggregation of interconnected pumps, heat exchanges, and, and turbines. Uh, to somebody, to a financier, to an investor, it can be an entire power station, including its infrastructure, its staffing, its consumables, and byproducts. So it's a system has got lots and lots of different definitions and systems engineering as a, as a discipline and by its very nature, it mandates that you have to define the system boundary, uh, which is usually somewhat governed by the system's objective. And I, I already know I'm getting probably a bit too abstract, but what I mean by that is, is that you can't define the maintenance costs for a power plant if your job is to design a water pump. <laughs> but you can define each individual's pump's performance if you're designing the water, uh, the, sorry, the power plant. So really what that means is that systems engineering is, a, is, a, is kind of a series of tools and processes for delivering top level objectives by manipulating the system's constituent components and their, let's say their, their, their relationships with each other. 
And I mean, practically, uh, what that means is, is that it's a structured approach um, from a top level down uh, to assure that a, a, any, a, a given system fulfills its objectives and its requirements. And those requirements and objectives might be that the system has, I don't know, an inherent availability of 99.999% or that the system doesn't consume more than the predetermined power load limit, or it's able to produce or perform the, specif the, the specified uh, top level performance. You know, it's really managing a lot of these groundbreaking statements that sort of you hear technology companies make and making sure that that actually happens at the ground level. So in a nutshell, the systems engineering is kind of the vehicle by which we assure ourselves that that's going to happen. And I suppose this is uh, this is one of you know the, the, the definition of systems engineering is largely encompassed and, and defined by the International Council on Systems Engineering, or or INCOSI for short. Um, but for me, systems engineering as, a, as, a, as an approach, the real question is why wouldn't you engineer in a deterministic way? If you want something to have an end-to-end -end performance, then you need to work from the end-to-end, -end, therefore at the very top level, down. And that's the real way in which you can start to understand what your equipment level might need need to, uh, how it may need to perform or the specifications it would need to be compliant with in order to achieve those top level objectives. So I'm hoping that gives you a bit of an overview. Yeah, and that's, you know, that really resounds with, with me and I think it'll resound a lot with the audience is, you know, oftentimes, at least in the industrial side, we get equipment that or the purchasing department their mandate is to is to buy the cheapest equipment <laughs> yeah. yep i've heard that one before <laughs> and so you know as long as it fulfills certain specifications they pick the cheapest one regardless and so it doesn't necessarily even comply to hey we want this certain availability or we want this performance out of the plant and so, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is resounding right across the board for me. Now, is it always done at, at a design phase or is it also done during operation? So the purpose of systems engineering is, is that so you, you, you would have systems engineer with you every step along the way within a, a good engineering project. These individuals, these systems engineers, are the people who are already looking at operations during the embryonic stages of the project. I mean, these, these people are, are advocates for making sure that operations is, is, a, is, a, is a smooth, continuous function. They are the people who are actually looking at those sorts of requirements very, very early on. Um, but that's not to say that they just disappear once the system has been, you know, established, constructed, commissioned, because you always need to think then about the continued maintenance of, uh, of the system entity and how it responds to specific environmental stimuli. So, uh, again, I'm going to have to try and relate this to the real world. And, uh, you know, this could be an instance where you have all of a sudden uh, a depletion in or a depletion in availability of your raw materials. How does your system cope with that? Well, the person who understands the system at a very top level, at a holistic level, is the systems engineer. That's the person who understands the underlying drivers and objectives of the, the let's say, the enterprise and the system and how they work together. They need to be the person who is then prescribing 
at the very top level, certainly, how the system might respond given those specific stimuli. And they might be sequential, they might be, you know, several stimuli uh, concurrently. Um, you know, a good, <laughs> I actually have a good example for this. I mean, this is, you consider, um, okay, so, so the World Health Organization, they, every single year, they release a recipe for the upcoming year's influenza vaccine. And they release this recipe to pharmaceutical companies that then go away and manufacture this va vaccine in high quantities in order to ensure that people are vaccinated and um, you know that generally that the world keeps on spinning. The time frame that they have to manufacture these vaccines can range anything between 10 and about 30 weeks. And that gives them sufficient time to actually manufacture the quantities of the vaccine that they need in order to uh, provide this to then their national health providers or uh, whoever else is administering these vaccines. Now, the World Health Organization also has data that suggests that every 10 years there is a pandemic. And this pandemic effectively nullifies the recipe, or it, it certainly uh, can, uh, it can show that the recipe is not as effective as they believed it to be. And when that happens, how do you manage that level of uncertainty? How do you manage that kind of uh, that, that level of risk as a vaccine manufacturer? You need to understand, you know, all of your assets and their capabilities and performance because everything's about to go in overdrive. So at what point do, does sort of external stimuli start to tip the scales in terms of understanding how your system might respond to, you know, running everything at 180 percent duty cycle? You know, what sort of implications does that have on your planned preventative maintenance? Um, how does that affect your stores and your logistics and your subcontractors? It's, it, it, that's the bit where systems engineering potentially gets a little bit more interesting because, you, you, you know, you're not just working within the confines of a system internally, but continuously through the deployment of the system, you're also understanding some of those external stimuli. That does sound interesting. You're making me want to switch careers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I guess, you know, a few things I want to get in with you is maybe the first one. So you're, you're not only looking at the equipment, you're also looking at the, the product itself or the inputs and the outputs. Like, is this, is there anything that you don't look at? Yeah. Okay. So there's, I mean, this is, this is the, let's say the, the practical or the pragmatic application of, of systems engineering. I mean, it's, I'm sure anyone who has ever done any model-based systems engineering uh, can relate to it's possible to start getting carried away with modeling every atom. And I think, you know, this is, this is one, of my, uh, one of my kind of tips for systems engineering, which is you don't need to go to too level of, uh, of detail if it's not adding value. So in the case of, for instance, this pharmaceutical um, enterprise, you know, you may want to you may want to model um, a pandemic situation as a, as part of a simulation just to understand what's going on. But you're certainly not going to start including simulations based on whether it's raining or not outside. And I think there's a certain level of uh, practicality that you always have to uh, apply to the things that you are doing. Um, I, I'm I think being a systems engineer, you tend to always look for the drivers of everything that you're doing. I mean, I mentioned, you know, questioning why, why am I doing this? Why is this going to make things better in the future? Is it going to make it harder for me? I think it's, it's important for us to also understand that, you know, 
everyone everyone uh, performing a specific task, it should have a specific output that we're expecting, uh, or at least have an inclination of, of of what it might be. And I think if you if you're as, as soon as you start delving into the sort of the abstract and then the further uncertain, you're just kind of opening a whole <laughs> a whole world of unknowns there. Absolutely. So. I guess when we were emailing before the podcast, Tim mentioned a few examples of systems engineering. And the first one included JCB changing their business model from selling diggers to selling holes. And Jaguar using a model-based systems approach to create and validate requirements for their automatic code generation. Now, can you explain why these are systems engineering and how is it different than a typical approach? Okay, I'll, ta- I'll, I'll tackle the first one first. So I think this was a bit of a, this was a, like a fantastic marketing ploy uh, by JCB, but it, it sort of grabbed people's attention, engineers as well, because it was uh, an interesting take on, on a traditional marketing uh, uh, sort of a concept, which was that they, they don't sell diggers at all, that they sell holes. And I mean, I should say that JCB's international headquarters is just a few miles east from our offices. And I, I really love driving past there because they always put their flagship diggers, these models out on the side of the highway, which is some of them are pretty cool. Um, but the, the, I mean, the, the, the crux here is really all about understanding requirements. And requirements are really very, very precious things to systems engineers. I can't emphasize that enough. And getting them right takes a lot of skill. And I mean, everyone, every single engineer in the world is familiar with, uh, you know, requirements or technical requirement specifications. They, they, they understand what that means. But to systems engineers, they've got a kind of a, be- a very special place in their heart um, because the requirements are the hooks onto which our system definition hangs. Everything that we do as systems engineers should usually be traceable to a formal requirement. Um, and, and, and to put that into the real world, a perfectly designed system doesn't doesn't have any sort of constituent elements, equipment, component, or part that isn't contributing towards the fulfillment of a requirement. Because what, well, why else would it be there? It's kind of similar to having you know a big red button on a control panel underneath the label sits saying "Do not press." It doesn't you know it's it's there, but it doesn't have a requirement. It doesn't have a purpose. It serves no conceivable purpose, or so we think. Um, so good requirements writing requires. Um, a lot of a lot of skill, and I like to I like to sort of to coin a phrase. I, I like to avoid any solutioneering. And when you write requirements, solutioneering is is kind of it's an unconscious uh, bias towards a specific solution. Okay, so it, it, what I'm trying to say is that writing a requirement involves a level level of agnosticism in order to get it right. And to put that into, let's say, a, a real context, you may um, imagine for a moment that you're, you're a maintenance engineer and you're working on a construction project. And, and you read a, a requirement in the technical requirement specification, which states a JCB shall be used to excavate the foundations. Now, the implications of this requirement are quite wide. It definitely narrows your available spares because all of a sudden you're limited to JCB approved parts. It limits your contractor pool as well, because now you need to get guys who are trained specifically to use JCBs, and it could increase your costs in probably a few other different ways. Now, if we put this into a slightly bigger context, 
The construction project is in India and the availability of JCBs, their spare parts and trained staff is appalling. So the requirement itself actually constrains you really significantly when the underlying need was actually that the foundations need to be mechanically excavated. So what you've actually done is you've, you've now imposed a level of agnosticism and you've really defined the system need, which is the fact that you need a hole digging. And I love the fact that JCB have, have completely, you know, they've, they've publicly announced the fact that they're selling you a capability of digging holes. It's not just the diggers, but you can dig these holes wherever you want, which I think is just, it's a, it's a very novel way of actually putting it around on its head. Now, the JLR example is perhaps a little bit more interesting uh, in terms of how systems engineers might use modeling. And the example I just gave a moment ago with those sort of those, those two uh, requirements, it's, it's fairly simple, but it, it can get rather, it can get rather complicated rather quickly. As soon as you start thinking about requirements, which might be intertwined or have specific dependencies. So let's go a step further with our, <laughs> with our Indian construction uh, project. And we're going to say that there's a, there, there are two new additional requirements on your list. One of which reads, the high rise shall be 50 standard stories high. And the second one, uh, or I should say the fourth one reads, foundations shall comply with local building codes and regulations. Now, as rational engineers, we might be able to deduce that the height of your building and the specification for your foundations are likely to be dependent. There's a, there's a high likelihood that how your foundations are formed, how they're poured, and their specification will largely depend on whether it's a one, two, three, or 50-story building. And those sorts of relationships, relationships are, are, are predominantly or have previously been sort of held in people's, you know, they've been held in databases or they've been held in Excel sheets or they've been held in people's minds. We're sort of now seeing a bit of a, a step change in terms of systems engineering. Um, to something new, which we're calling model-based systems engineering, or, or MBSE for short. And these modeling techniques allow us to establish uh, dependency relationships between requirements in much more complicated ways. And what that means is that we can virtually connect the building height requirement with a foundation design. And again, just to reiterate, three or four requirements is not too much of an issue, but consider how complicated it might be for something like the Eurofighter aircraft which I know had something in the region of about 10,000 individual requirements. So as a systems engineer, you can imagine it becomes very, very handy when requirements change, which as we all know, they, they tend to, uh, or when subcontractors inform you of a non-compliance. Now as systems engineers, we need to really understand what the effect of these sorts of stimuli might be and whether or not they're tolerable on the system as a whole. Because if a subcontractor comes to me uh, with relation to the Eurofighter project and tells me that he's, he's going to be making the airframe out of steel rather than aluminium, I would say that's probably a significant problem. So I think, I think that's, kind of, um, that, that's an area where JLR certainly expanding and they've gone a, a step further actually. Not only have they modeled their requirements and established the dependencies, but then they've also integrated their software syntax within their requirements. They've also pulled together what I call a structural and, and a behavioral model. Um, and that allows them to then automatically generate lines of code, which correspond to functions or features, which the user might see being sat in a, in a luxury car. All of a sudden, you know, a, 
an otherwise um, an, an, an otherwise uh, non let's say let's say a non software engineer might be able to all of a sudden change the features and the requirements of, of of the new class of Range Rover based on a great idea that he's had about collecting uh, uh, let's say roadside data and he's able to inject a new requirement and to roll that through and to immediately develop the code without having to do a significant change in a significant design activity that would otherwise use uh, multiple departments, multiple skills, you know, huge amounts of paperwork. The fact is, is that this model can be used to then generate real engineering artifacts. And that is a groundbreaking kind of a leap in the sense of you have a traditional design um, development pro process where you have sort of, let's say, a requirements gathering, a requirements solicitation, a requirements sign-off. You then have a development phase based on those requirements. You then have a prototyping and an implementation phase and an integration phase. And anything that you've missed up until that point, that's where you catch it. That's where you catch the costs. That's where you catch the, all of the schedule slip at that integra integration uh, phase. Well, now, all of a sudden, complex engineering design is almost instantaneous. It's an instantaneous, continuous process without as many hang-ups, without as much cost, without as many problems. And I mean, the next step really is to, is to have these models then immediately print out your integration plans, uh, to have these models print out your construction plans, to, to tell you whether or not your production facility in Europe is of sufficient capability to manufacture, you know, 500, you know, 500,000 of these cars every single month. So again, we, we, we're kind of seeing this, this, this movement. And I think JLR are taking real steps forwards in terms of looking at how lots of these data articles can be integrated within their, their systems and their design uh, processes as they stand right now. And I know other companies like Kinetic have, have also done this sort of thing too, but it's, it's, it, there's, there's a huge step change going on at the moment. And certainly in the next few years, this will become uh, you know, pretty mainstream, I imagine. Yeah, I think, well, there's the, the two different model types there, but the what we've been talking about, at least in reliability, is that first, I guess it's, it's more of a sales strategy, but it's instead of selling the actual piece of equipment, you're selling what the piece of equipment does. And, and at least in the mining industry, we're starting to see that pop up more often than not. The second one... Now, is, is that modeling, is that sort of a, I guess you would call it a digital twin, or is it a Monte Carlo-based simulator? So the, there's a huge amount of flexibility in the modeling space. And what that means is really that the person who's driving the model, they've, they've kind of, they're given a blank canvas, and it's up to them to really define the kinds of things that they want to model and how, how, what levels of modeling they want to go to. Um, see, so what we have here is we, I mean, I should explain, we've got model-based systems engineering, which is kind of the, 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 the entity name that we, uh, that we use. Uh, but the specific notation that we use is something called SysML or system modeling language. And I mean, that is just a, that, that that's our, that's our uh, common tongue amongst systems engineers. That's, that's, that's what's familiar to us. We understand what the symbols and the definitions mean. Um, but the model itself uh, is is really um, it isn't more isn't it, it, it sorry it isn't any more complicated than 
the relationships between specific entities and then enforcing series uh, a series of rules based on the interactions that are permissible between those data entries and i mean you, you you can use whatever data you want you can use numerical data you can use strings you know in terms of words you can use uh, equations it, it doesn't necessarily matter but what you're able to do is you're able to bundle together lots and lots of characteristics and the way that the way that i i, I tend to present this to people is is that you can have uh, you know, visually on your on your computer screen, you can have something as simple as a as a small box which has got a label on it which says pump, and that is just a visual representation. It's a very abstract, uh, almost like a flow, you know, a block diagram kind of representation of a pump. But beneath the surface, you can add as much detail about what that pump might be as you want. So you can add. Uh, additional fields of data which might correspond to its form factor, to its supplier, to its cost, uh, to its physical location. If you're looking at in more more closely to asset management, um, you can you know you can pin reliability data to it. I mean, the one thing that interests me now is whether or not you can actually inject live data um, from. Uh, let's say response data from active equipment uh, back into your model, um, and I think that 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 could be a possibly an, an interesting kind of an area for development for for modeling techniques. Um, but the um, you know the model itself is largely a blank canvas, and what we do is we use model-based systems engineering and SysML uh, as a bit of a framework by which we can uh, communicate models from one systems engineer to another. And the whole purpose behind SysML is actually for it to be accessible by the masses. So if you were to go into Google and type in SysML, there will be a series of diagrams that popped up and you would probably be able to determine what it is that it's representing. And that's been made so specifically so that it's a lot easier for these relationships between these data articles uh, to be represented visually because, you know, at the end of the day, we're only we're only human. We can only take as much data as as you possibly can within ten seconds, or whatever the rule is. <laughs> so, if anyone's listening and they want to learn more about systems engineering, can you have? Do you have some places that we can look at? Uh, yeah, I think I think the best place to start is probably the Incosi website, which is the International Council on Systems Engineering. Um, and the other place, which is a really fantastic resource, is the Systems Engineering Book of Knowledge. Um, and if you just go as far as to, to Google that, that, that term, um, you'll find a website which is a, a wiki-style resource uh, for learning all about systems engineering. Um, and it's, it's actually extremely credible and in keeping with the uh, INCOSI uh, way of systems engineering. And I think that's a really good place to initially start. The other thing to consider potentially is that INCOSI uh, professional body is, is fairly widespread. So they will probably have a chapter within your area. It's worthwhile getting in touch with them and just seeing whether or not there are any events occurring or whether there are any meetups and just start to speak to the community there. And what you'll quickly find is that probably a huge amount of overlap between the reliability and the systems community, where we're all struggling with similar problems, just probably attacking them from slightly different uh, perspectives. That's that's definitely true. I mean, it, just talking to you, Rob, it seems like there's a lot of overlap. We just, maybe we we stop at I guess the equipment level, or sometimes we'll get into spare parts and some other stuff, but you guys are looking at inputs and outputs. So it's a little more in depth. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, um, again, 
I kind of I tend not to really differentiate between equipment level and let's say system level because every system has got constituent parts and and this is where people start to, and you may have heard this but people start talking about a system system of systems and uh, this is you know how far down the down the rabbit hole do you want to go here but it's uh, what what we're basically saying is is again to the design engineer a piece of equipment is is a valid system and it's just a re- it's a, just a question of perspective and you know as as i say you know you have to kind of cut yourself off as far as you want to go because I, I I will tend to work at this kind of black box level where I'm quite happy just calling a, a box on my screen a water pump I don't need to delve any you know I was a mechanical engineer I will delve into there if I get really interested but I have to kind of rein myself in a little bit um, so I tend not to really differentiate between sort of an equipment level and a system level I think it's just a it's just a question of perspective yeah and, and you know what you're mentioning with you can go as deep as you want it, it applies across the board as well with reliability like when we're looking at rcm for example you know when you're looking at failure modes and you could go as deep as you want but the question is is at what point can you actually affect that result and it's the same thing again another one root cause analysis like we could go back to the invention of mining or the invention of the country. And again, it's like, does it really matter? Not like you can't affect that. So why does it matter? Mm. And this is, I mean, this is an interesting thing is, is that everyone is, everyone suffers technical risk. And I mean, really, this is all, you know, we, 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 we boil down to this point of, you know, um, a pump isn't just a pump. What we're, what, we're, what we're talking from the systems community is we're talking about a mechanism or a means by which we can transfer some fluid or transfer a medium, I should say, just to really make it completely abstract. And from a systems perspective, we might just say, right, that, that's an entity that just fulfills that function. So what happens to the system when that function stops? And that's the bit where it kind of starts to get interesting because the ways in which you might want to mitigate that kind of an occurrence could be taken from a system level or from a, you know, as you say, from like a reliability from an equipment level. So you can potentially put in a redundant, you can put in a redundant pump, you can put in a secondary measure. But likewise, you know, a systems engineer might ask uh, the investors, does it, does it matter if this thing is down for a day? You know, can we, you know, is there flexibility in terms of changing, uh, you know, changing the production lines? Can we just possibly shift, shift the production from this factory to another production factory? You know, it, it, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting because you, you can still face that kind of problem that people do on a day to day, but just by sort of stepping outside of the, uh, of the immediate kind of environment, you can possibly look for solutions which consider a much wider um, solution space. And I think that's that's perhaps sort of a bit more in terms of the the abstract system side, um, which is perhaps a slightly different approach in terms of uh, uh, where the reliability community may be coming from. Yeah, I mean, we definitely start off with the functions. We definitely start off with if this function or if the if we have functional failure, i.e., we don't make that function, what happens? And sometimes we will go as far as recommending redundancy or standby equipment, but it doesn't always go that far. It just depends who you're talking to. Mm. Well, that's, again, that's a huge thing, you know, understanding your stakeholders. Because to, 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 to one guy, it might be the most, that, that specific piece of equipment may be the most critical piece of equipment in, in, on the whole shop floor. 
Um, but that's just because he has a particular affinity to it. <laughs> so you kind of have to really understand, you know, people's criticality and people's opinions as well, because, you know, the same question asked uh, to the foreman as you would do the investment investor, you know, you get two completely different uh, responses and yet you're talking about the same thing. So it's, it's kind of, it's really interesting to try and piece that together uh, because it's, that's kind of the common challenge that a lot of us are facing, I think. Yeah, and and it's something where we need to tie it back to our organizational goals, like going back to ISO fifty five thousand asset management. It's, you know, what is our company here to do? What are the values of our company? And those types of questions, those are what we need to answer, and then tie that all the way down to this pump in the corner of our plant. Yeah, I I completely agree, and I mean, um, it's interesting because you know as. The engineering community, uh, you know, we, we do talk sometimes, right? Um, but the, the, let's say the, the, the financial sector, I mean, they employ uh, proper financial modeling techniques. And you think, and they do this, they you, know, you go and you can Google enterprise architecture and they go away and they scroll away and they model exactly how an enterprise, how a business is going to operate. You know, they, they will draw boxes and flowcharts and activity diagrams all linked together, which define how an organization will not only sustain itself, but will also grow and develop. And actually, you know, why can't we pull that into a working system model that then ties together with, I don't know, or incorporates a reliability model? Because all of a sudden, then you've got end-to-end decision-making capability based on your organizational's, uh, your organization's aspirations and immediate objectives. And I kind of see that as the next logical step. I, 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 I struggle to see why no one else has put that together, but uh, it's, I think it's very interesting. <laughs> you heard it here first, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, perfect. So I get, you know, we're, 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 we're wrapping up here. So do you have anything that you want to plug? Like if people are listening and they want to connect with you on LinkedIn, like first off, if they've got through to the podcast from LinkedIn, you'll be tagged in the post, but do you want them to check out Aon Engineering? Are you going to be at any conferences? Do you have anything to plug? Um, I, I kind of wish I was that that organized. Um, I, uh, I I kind of do a bit of a, um, a bit of a systems engineering surgery on LinkedIn. So I'll occasionally get a few messages where people are saying, you know, we're having recurring problems with this. And what do you think, you know, systems engineering may be able to do or may be able to offer to try and help us, you know, prevent, um, let's say, prevent last minute requirement changes? Or how can we decrease our integration costs? Because they always spiral out of control. And I tend to give sort of fairly short, snappy responses, usually preceded with questions, because again, I'm a systems engineer, I like context. Um, so, uh, you know, people are f- pretty much free to, uh, to contact me through LinkedIn. Um, uh, my firm, Aon Engineering, we're, we're a systems engineering consultancy based in the Northwest in the UK. Um, the other thing to do is to add Aon within your LinkedIn because uh, in the coming months, we're going to be releasing a few how-tos and a few guides when it comes to some of the, the more tangible parts of systems engineering, like good requirement writing practices and an introduction into model-based systems engineering and really where it could possibly add value within your organization. So that, that would be the next thing to uh, for people to do. Yeah, that, that sounds like some good content. And I mean, you know, everyone listening requirement writing 
that's really, I mean, from what I can tell talking to you, Rob, is it's very similar to when we write functions in reliability. And so absolutely. Yes. Take a look at it for sure. I mean, I'm going to take a look at it. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Great. At least we're going to get one view. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, Rob, I, I appreciate you coming on today. And I know we only really scratched the surface. So I'm looking forward to next time. Maybe we can go a little deeper. Absolutely. Yeah. More than happy to. Perfect. So everyone who's still listening, I appreciate you listening so much. 